And we're ready for another one, right? Yay! No! Boo! I don't know. Whatever, right? All right. Quiz 5 will be available starting on Friday. And that'll cover chapters 11 and 12. We'll be through chapter 12. We should be through the end of it. Should be through the end of it today. And then exam 3, covering chapters 10, 11, and 12, will be on Monday. So coming up very shortly. Uh, similar style and structure to what I've done on the previous, uh, previous two exams. Your third set of solar observations is due on Wednesday, a week from today. Uh, so go ahead and turn those in and I'll get you those back on Friday. That's the last time I'll be collecting them before we go over the, go over the project. And then homework six due the end of next week. So busy week, busy week next week with a bunch of things coming, coming up. And then the following week we have an iTunes quiz that will be the third of those, uh, covering pictures going through next Friday. And from the previous, from the previous quiz that will be available all week again. And then the sixth quiz will, should be available if, if we go as scheduled, that should be available the following weekend and covering chapters 13 and 14. So, any questions? Questions? No, 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 no. Okay. All right. Picture of the day for today then. Uh, Halloween picture? Maybe? I don't know. First thing I saw when I looked at it was like a bat sitting there. It's a bat sitting there flying through space. So maybe you see that. It's titled a specter in the eastern veil. It's part of, a, part of a nebula, actually a supernova remnant, so a very timely picture for us. But the first thing I saw was a little bat here with the wings stretching out to both sides. So first thing that jumped out to me, or either that or I have to have a good imagination, so, which I'm not usually told. <laughs> but this is actually part of a supernova remnant. So an exploded star, which is what we were just talking about in class last time and be finishing up today. So it is the part of, the, of a remnant. So it's not that a star exploded in the middle of this. You're looking at one part of that. And the whole Veil Nebula actually is a big, more circular pattern that goes all the way, or we go all the way around, just looking at one portion of it there. So material that was expelled out in the exploding uh, explosion of a star. Now what I could not find on this, and I tried to look it up and see, was which type of supernova this was. So it didn't tell me that there had been any identification as to whether it was a type 2 supernova, a massive star that is at the very end of its life that it exploded, or if it was a type 1 supernova, a white dwarf star that exploded. Both are about equally common, so it's not that it's more likely to be one than the other. It's about equal, about equal in uh, properties and to appear, uh, how often they do appear. But this one it does not really tell me. I could not find and identify exactly which type it was from that. Well, the, the spectrum during the supernova, it'll be quite different. The spectrum will look different. It's very easy to distinguish. But after the fact, you know, thousands of years later, all we have is, the, is this. And that doesn't tell us much of anything as to which type it was. If we could observe it, then it would be very easy. They have, two they have definitely a very, two different very uh, light curves and how they vary in brightness. The spectra of them are quite different. Uh, one has hydrogen in it. One has no hydrogen. Uh, lines in it in the observations. So that doesn't really, but looking after the fact, when you're looking at the explosion, you can tell a lot more. After the fact, it's a lot harder to tell because once you get out into the interstellar medium, now you're going to see hydrogen, you're going to see everything else mixed in 
mixed in with it. So harder to tell after the fact, but I could not find anything for sure that told me which one, which one it was. But a pretty little Halloween, Halloween picture there, a bat or a ghost or something, something there. So jumping ahead, they did a Halloween picture for us today since they know we're not meeting on Halloween. So, you know, unless everybody wants to come in tomorrow. No, I didn't think so. I don't either. So, all right. Any questions? Well, yeah, that doesn't affect this class time, but yeah, that would be more fun. I'll have my little, what is she going to be? A princess, mermaid, fairy or something she wants to be, my, little, my, my six-year-old? Yeah. So she wants the tail, she wants the wings, and she wants the crown. So <laughs> get a little of everything. So yeah. Yeah. So. Alrighty, well, let's go ahead and talk about some more supernovae then. Oops. We were looking at this last time. So, we were looking at that, and I was mentioning the two types of supernovae. Um, this is what happens for each one. Two quite different situations as to what happens. So, if we could look at it at the time, it's very easy to tell the difference as to which which one was occurring. In this case you have a binary star system. In fact for a type 1 supernova it requires a binary star system. It can't occur outside of one. And one star goes through its life, becomes a white dwarf at the core, expels a planetary nebula out into space. Later the smaller star which was the smaller star, then goes through its life, maybe a billion years later, however long it takes it to finish going through its life. It will expand and swell to become a red giant star. If those two stars were close enough in the first place, you know, astronomical units apart, that could become large enough that it actually begins to suck material off that star. So material begins to build up on this star. Then it depends on how massive that white dwarf was. A typical white dwarf, you'll get a nova explosion. You'll build up enough hydrogen on the surface that it can explode it off and burn it up and do it again and again and again. That's a typical nova explosion. If on the other hand you're right at the limit as to what, this white, uh, red, uh, what the white dwarf is allowed to be, it has a limiting mass of 1.4 solar masses. If you're right at that limit, you can push it over, you can push it over the edge. You can put enough material on to push it over the edge, in which case that star collapses, immediately starts to collapse, immediately heats up so much that it ignites carbon throughout the star all at once. So all of a sudden it's just a gigantic explosion. That star tears itself apart and nothing is left behind. Essentially nothing is left. It's all gone. That entire star has been destroyed. So that's one type of supernova. That's what we call type 1. The second type is the end state of a massive star. So right now you have, you have right now, back a stage, you have hydrogen in the sun burning into helium. For a more massive star you'll eventually get carbon build up in the core and all the way up to iron. Once you get iron in the core, that star is in big trouble. It can't do anything. It can't do anything with that iron. Can't fuse that iron together to get energy. 
If you recall last time I told you, you could take those high, you get it hot enough, you can fuse iron atoms together. Get it hot enough, you can fuse anything together. You can overcome their repulsion. You can fuse them together, but it takes energy to do that. So the product requires a little bit of energy. So if you're sucking energy out, you're sucking temperature out, right? So it's going to start to cool off the core. So it's going to collapse more, increasing the rate of this. And all of a sudden, it's going to be a runaway thing that happens in the period of hours. So once it gets there, once it gets to that stage of producing iron, you know, within hours you have a supernova explosion. How long does it take to get there? Well, you know how long. There's stars that astronomers have been monitoring that are very good candidates to go supernova. But will it happen tomorrow? Or will it happen, you know, a thousand years from now? You know, to the star when you're getting to that stage could be a very big difference into actually getting to that iron. Once you build, but once you build up that core of iron, all of a sudden it's just gone. So you're sucking all the energy out. The star implodes. So all the core collapses down, rebounds, and explodes out the outer layers and expels the outer layers out into, into space. And there will be a core left behind there. That's what we call a neutron star, subject of the next chapter, or one of the subjects of the next chapter, that can be left behind after that supernova explosion. So you can have a core left behind here. Not always easy to see it. It's very tiny. Instead of being Earth-sized, now you're down to a city-sized object. So incredibly tiny, you know, maybe 10 kilometers across, 6 miles across. Not very big, not very easy to see when you're talking hundreds or thousands of light years away. So those were the two types. And what you see pretty much in either case is maybe a remnant like this or like the part of one that we looked at in the photo of the day for today. This is a very famous one. This is the Crab Nebula. Uh, visible in the constellation of Taurus and is an exploded star. This one actually is a type 2 supernova. This one was actually observed and interestingly enough occurred in 1054. Uh, there are lots of records of it from Asia, uh, um, Arab record, a lot of Arab records of it, uh, American Indian records of it. No European records or very few the European records of it at the time. Certainly there were people there looking at the sky, so it's a good question as to why it never, either every reference to it was eventually gone, but it's not like they could have missed it. This star would have been visible during the daytime. I mean, this is close enough and would have been bright enough at its peak that you would have been able to see it during the day. And it was recorded elsewhere around the world, but was not actually recorded in Europe at the time. Now, of course, Europe in 1050 so wasn't, you know, the most stable place either. So there may have had other concerns other than you know, recording a new star in the sky, too. Yeah. But it was, it was one that occurred and was widely recorded elsewhere, elsewhere in the world. Is there a question? I'm sorry. Yeah, a lot of war coming on. I mean, you're coming, you're coming up to you know, William the Conqueror's only a few decades or so after that. So you're getting up very, very close to that time. Yeah? Mm-hmm. It would, it would be brighter, it would be bright, yeah, you I mean you'd see it, I mean it would brighten, not bright, like a very completely bright sky, but you know, the way the full moon brightens the night sky. I don't know if it would have been quite that bright exactly, but it would have been enough, you know, to cast, the full moon will cast shadows, so you would have been able to, you know, it would have been a very bright night. Yeah. But that's an example of what's left behind. In this case, this is a type 2 supernova. There is a remnant left down in... Right about down in here, there is a remnant of a neutron star 
down there that we'll look about look at a little more in the next chapter. So there actually is a remnant left behind from this imploded imploded star. That central core of it still exists. But the rest of the material is spread out into space and you can actually uh, make measurements. You can watch this. You can take pictures taken you know, decades apart of the nebula and you can measure its expansion, figure out how fast it's expanding. You can actually trace back the date. So you know, a lab exercise that I used to do years ago actually had you do those measurements and see if you could you know, track it down. Could you come up with the year around 1054 for when the explosion, when the explosion occurred? What? I haven't done I haven't done it in a while here. It's a it's a little more it involves a little more calculations than I typically do on a lab, and you know very precise me- and and very accurate measure. You have to measure really really accurately. So it's one I've considered trying to do. I've gotten copy I've gotten a copy of it again. So I've considered doing it again, but I haven't haven't tried it out. Haven't started to try it out yet. But it is, one, it is one that can be done and it sort of gives you an answer to look for. You know what you're trying to get and you can see if you can, you know, how accurately can you measure, can you make the measurements. Uh, no, that's actually a pen and paper, paper lab. It's actually a Sky and Telescope lab that Sky and Telescope uh, published many years ago. They, did, they have two images of it and you make, have to make very detailed, very careful measurements. Identify the pulsar and measure everything from the pulsar. So. But no, I don't, I don't have a Starry Night uh, way to do that one on Starry Night. All right, next to last section of this chapter is looking, it's observing stellar evolution. How can we actually observe stellar evolution? I already told you we can't, right? Not for an individual star. We're never going to see any stage of its, stellar, of its evolution. We'll see one stage, whatever it's in right now, and it doesn't matter where that is or how long that takes. Unless it's the supernova phase, that's the one we can watch. Everything else takes way too long. But one way that we can observe stellar evolution is by looking at clusters of stars. So we can start out looking at a star and what we're going to go through here is looking at clusters of varying ages. So this first one is at an age of zero. The stars just formed. So the stars are just forming here. And if you recall when I mentioned stars forming, I told you the massive stars form quickest. Right? They got more material, they collapse down fastest and they've actually reached the main sequence. They've reached their stability. While they're doing that, these other stars, these less massive stars are still working their way down there. They're still on their way down towards the main sequence. So you never have a state where all of the stars are on the main sequence at one time. Some have. And in this case, some have not yet reached it. Now what we'll do is we'll jump through different stages. So the second one here is 10 million years later. So fast forward 10 million years of time. And what happens? These stars are still working their way towards the main sequence. It takes them a long time. Those low mass stars form very, very slowly. It takes them a long time. So they still haven't quite reached the main sequence yet. Whereas these most, most massive stars are already gone. So some stars are still in the process of forming. They all started at the same time. But some are still in the process of forming. Some have already, all right, we're done. Used up all our fuel. We're heading off to the red giant phase. Whereas these other ones haven't even gotten there yet. So after 10 million years, but what you're beginning to see, and we looked at this in the one lab, is that there is going to be a point where these stars are turning off the main sequence, where they are just leaving the main sequence. So they're on the main sequence from here 
all the way up, and then there's a point in here where they're just turning off. That is one way we can figure out the age, how old a cluster is, where that turnoff point actually occurs. So starting off with a zero, what we call the zero age main sequence, when stars first have formed there, and then going on 10 million years, very short time, astronomically speaking. You know, for the life of the sun, that's nothing. What's 10 million years? Uh, but out of 10 billion. But we still already, some of the most massive stars have already gone through their lives. Jump a factor of 10, let's go 100 million years now. We've now got almost all the stars finally working their way to the main sequence, just a few of them still working their way down there. We're starting to see a little bit better. The turnoff point will get better and better defined as the stars, as the cluster ages. And you're starting to see, you start to see that. 100 million years now, all the stars on the main sequence, just about, except for these most massive ones, now you're starting to see a few working their way over into more, working their way over into the red giant phase. By a billion years, so a tenth of the sun's life, starting to get to something significant for the sun, right? You know, if a person lives, you know what, a hundred years, just for even numbers, it's about ten years of a person's life. So that's something, something significant compared to the other numbers we've been looking at before. So out of, after one billion years, we're really starting to get stars in the red giant phase. They're starting to populate there. They actually last, means they actually last there a little bit longer. The ones that get over there first, like they don't last on the main sequence very long, they don't last on the red giant phase very long. So when we take our little cosmic snapshot of them, the odds of catching them there are very small. As they spend more and more time over here, we're much more likely to catch them. Because remember, we're only catching one, insta one instant of their life. That's all we're catching for each star. But when we look at all these stars of different masses, then we catch each one and we can sort of see the progression. What is going on? Where are they moving? How, are they, how is their luminosity changing? How is their temperature changing over time? And then finally, bless you. Um, after 10 billion years, that's the life of the sun. So the sun hasn't gotten here yet, but there are many stars that have reached this point and many clusters. We still have a distinct main sequence down here. All of these stars are long gone. So most of these are, you know, the supernovae were way up in the upper corner up here. They're long gone. Most of these have begun to form white dwarf stars. But you can see sort of the pattern when I showed you how they went through their life. They go off the main sequence into that subgiant branch up to the giants. You can almost see it peaking way up here where the helium flash would occur. Helium beginning to burn. Settling back down to the horizontal branch over here for a while and then going back up. So you can almost see that pattern that we traced out when we talked about stellar evolution early in this chapter in a single cluster. Because we can look at stars of all different ages, of all different masses of, the sa of about the same age that all formed at the same time. Now you're beginning to see all the different parts, you know, very well defined because the stars are spending a relatively larger amount of time in those sections. So if it spends a lot of time in the red giant phase, we're much more likely to catch it there in our little snapshot. We also start to see the white dwarf stars as some of those stars have worked their way down. So they've gone through their lives. They became a uh, planetary nebula after they went up here, kind of wrap around real quickly, and then end up down there as a white dwarf star. And then they're about done. They can't do much else. 
Unless they're in a binary system, that white dwarf's going nowhere but cooling off. It'll slowly cool off over time, and that's it. Unless it's in a binary system where it might become a nova, or it might become a supernova, it's just going to cool off for the next trillion years. All right, let's see. Here's an example of a cluster. Uh, we looked at one similar to this in our in the lab, not quite this age, but, but similar. Uh, this is a cluster in the constellation of Perseus, actually a double star cluster. There's one group here, one group over here in the image. When you take those and plot them all, so you make all the measurements, you measure their magnitudes, their absolute magnitudes, you measure their spectral class or their temperatures, and you put them on the chart, you actually end up with, there's a very nice main sequence, very little down here, but just starting to turn off. You can make an estimate of where that turns off, and that gives you an estimate of the age. Again, use that turnoff point to tell us approximately how old the cluster is. The more stars you see in the upper part of the main sequence, the younger the cluster is. So this is a very young cluster, maybe about 10 million years old. So very young, comparatively speaking, to some of the older clusters that we will look at. And an older cluster is... There, Hyades cluster, oh, Hyades cluster, a little bit of intermediate, sorry, go to intermediate one first. Hyades cluster is a little bit in between. You notice we start to see some white dwarfs down here. So some stars have actually become white dwarf stars. You're starting to see a few red giants. And you're seeing nothing up here. All these stars are gone. So they've either gone into the red giant phase, they've, the most massive ones blew up as supernovae. Some of the less massive ones have gone as become white dwarfs. Main sequence is still very well defined though. So you still have a very nice defined main sequence and you can still see pretty much where stars are approximately turning off and jumping to the red giant phase. Again, you don't see a lot in between because these more massive stars go very quickly. It doesn't take them a very long time to go from here to here as compared to a star like the sun. It takes a much longer time. So we're very unlikely to catch them in that in between phase. Doesn't mean they don't exist. They have to, they can't just all of a sudden today be, you know, 10 times the luminosity of the sun and tomorrow be 10,000 times the luminosity of the sun. Not unless they're blowing up, not unless they're a supernovae. That's not what's happening here. So they do have to go here, but if it takes tens of thousands or 100,000 years, we're very unlikely to actually catch many of them in that situation. And then we look at a much older cluster, a globular cluster about 10 or 12 billion years old. Again, approximations are about that in astronomy. It's not like I can say it's 10,263,425,218 years old. Don't ask me to repeat that either. <laughs> but you can't, you know, I can't tell you that exact age, but you know, it's maybe 10 billion, maybe we can get rough estimates. We can't really get exact ages for uh, many of these very old objects. You'll see that a lot of them are very much estimates. Now what you do see is you see a nicely defined main sequence. You've got a lot of stars there to look at, first of all. It's a globular cluster is a lot more stars. Aren't you glad you didn't have to plot all of those on your globular cluster? You only had to plot like 30 or 40 of them. So you could plot thousands of them if you really wanted to. But there's the, there's the main sequence, still nicely defined. But now you start to see where they're turning off and going to the red giant branch. It just means they're taking a longer time. That a star like the sun will not just go from here to here in, you know, 
thousands or 10,000 years. It might take it hundreds of thousands, millions of years to work its way through. So we start to see more and more stars in that area. But they work their way up to the red giant branch. They ignite helium and jump back down to the horizontal branch. And then they go back up. As they use up the helium, they'll move back up towards the red giant and the red supergiant phase up here again. Again, there's not a lot of stars up there because they don't spend a lot of time there. The star will spend a very tiny fraction of its life. If you just take a random snapshot of a star, you're going to catch it where it lives most of the time. You're not going to catch it in those very uh, rare states. Question? What are the blue stragglers? Good question. The blue stragglers are stars that shouldn't be in that cluster. They're main sequence stars right here, and there's a few of them. But they're too bright. All of the other stars of that age have turned off the main sequence. They're still on the main sequence. Uh, common explanation for them is that they're uh, mergers between binary stars that were really close together. And they happened to merge together and became a more massive star later in its life. That mixes up the amount of hydrogen that they're. So they're going to end up with a star maybe twice as massive as it was. And it's still going to be, uh, be, much, be much hotter. And it's still going to be on the main sequence because you've now formed, kind of merged to a bigger star doesn't happen very often. As you can see, there's a few there. There's only a few there, but they do, they do actually occur in some of these clusters. You can get some cases where stars will actually merge together. They could also be stars that just formed later. You could have a few stars that happen to form a little bit later. But as you get further and further down, that kind of gets less likely because the stars, it lasts such a long time that you're not really going to notice that time. The, the time that these stars should have evolved is much, much less. So typically they're left over, but they're interesting. They're stars that, that shouldn't be there, that shouldn't be in that cluster. There should be no main sequence stars of that temperature, and yet there are a few. The other thing that you look at, is I tell you often that stars don't really collide. When you get to the central cores of these clusters, the density of stars is a lot more than it is around here. So there's a lot more stars in the sky. You know, if you, li if you live there, you know, it wouldn't be like going out here in a very dark site at night. It would be that a million times over. So night sky would be bright with stars if you, were, if you lived in the center of one of these, of these clusters. There's a lot more stars there. And you're talking you know, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of astronomical units between them instead of talking about light years between the nearest stars. So they are a lot closer together there. And in some of those binaries, you will possibly merge, merge stars. Yes. All righty. Well, finish up here. Oh, question? No, go ahead. Red dwarfs are just uh, these. It's, it's to distinguish between some of the red stars. There's red dwarf stars, or stars that are on the main sequence. So these are main sequence stars that are dwarfs, as opposed to the red giants. So they're red stars, but instead of being very large, they're actually very, very small stars. So it's just a comment for a, re for a uh, red star that's on the main sequence. All right, last section here, all of one page is just sort of showing you the cycle of stellar evolution. What we've done in the last two chapters is that we start off. Where do you want to start off? Start off with the interstellar medium, maybe. You've got dark clouds out there. Those form stars. Those stars will go through their lives. At some point, some of those stars will explode and expel that material back out into the interstellar medium, which then enriches the material which then form stars again. So it's a never-ending cycle. That's where all the material comes from. 
So everything we have in this room, unless it's made of hydrogen or helium, which isn't a lot of it, is, comes from supernovae explosions. That's the only way to get all those elements back out into the universe. Planetary nebula doesn't do it. Planetary nebula expels the outer layers of a star. Those outer layers of the star are all hydrogen and helium. So it doesn't get any of the material. So the sun will not enrich, even though the sun will form a carbon core, it won't enrich the neighborhood with carbon because it will all stay locked up in that white dwarf. It's never getting out. A supernova explosion is the only way to actually get that material back out into the interstellar, interstellar medium to then form new stars so that those new stars will form, the next generation of stars will form with more heavy elements than the first. So if you think about that, that means that the first stars that would have formed in the universe would have been only hydrogen and helium. There would have been nothing else. So you wouldn't have been able to form planets like the Earth around the very earliest stars. You could have formed a planet more like Jupiter, right? Hydrogen and helium pretty much one of the gas giant planets. But you would not have been able to form a planet like the Earth with things like rocks and metals because it took several cycles going through this of supernovae explosions to enrich that material even to that fraction of a percent that it is now. Now it's tiny, it's still, if you count the atom, if you pick a random atom out of the universe, if it's not hydrogen or helium, boy you're lucky and go play the lottery, right? If you're just picking a random sample out of any, you know, number all the atoms in the universe and pick one randomly, it's going to be hydrogen, 90%, 10% helium, and the rounding errors are everything else. So we have a very biased view here because we see all this other stuff. You see carbon and you see oxygen and nitrogen, but in the universe they're relatively rare. Unending. So, well, eventually you're going to run out of material or things are going to get so far apart, but we're talking, you know, long, long time away. Not something that will happen in the... You know, in one or two, it's not like there'll be two more cycles and it'll be done, or there'll be a hundred more cycles and it'll be done. It's a, it's a long time. A long time to use up all the material that we have in the universe. But technically, yes, if you want to get technical, yeah, eventually we'll run out of material and there'll be not much left in the universe, not much going on. In terms of star formation, at least. All right. Alrighty, well, let's summarize chapter 12 and we can get started on chapter 13. Chapter 12 was really stellar evolution, what happens, uh, the end life of a star. We use up the hydrogen in the core, so you build up helium in the core, that core contracts down, gets smaller and smaller, the outer atmosphere expands, gets cooler, so it becomes a red giant. So once the hydrogen begins to use up, you start, you still have a source of energy in a shell of hydrogen, so you have an inert core that's all helium, you have a shell of hydrogen around it where energy is still being produced, and you have the outer layers that are inert, nothing's happening there, that are expanding, uh, expanding and getting larger and larger. Eventually, helium begins to fuse in the core, you'll reach 100 million degrees, and helium will be, be able to fuse in, that, in the core and give it a new energy source actually in the core. Uh, for a star like the Sun, that's a helium flash, meaning that it's an immense explosion, essentially, that goes into uncompressing all the compression that has gone down over the previous, you know, hundreds of millions of years. As this occurs, that core has been in compact tighter and tighter and tighter. You need to risk some energy to expand that. And that's the helium flash is going into expanding that core outward. The star will expand to a red, will be a, will be a red giant now. 
the core could keeps collapsing the core will collapse again as you start to use start to get helium build up now you start to get carbon build up there eventually as you use up the helium the envelope will get larger and larger eventually instabilities in the star will push that envelope off leaving behind a white dwarf leaving behind a white dwarf star and a planetary nebula planetary nebula phase will last you know tens of thousands of years relatively short time so those are the ones where we're lucky when we click the snapshot and we happen to get them in that phase. The white dwarf will gradually cool and nothing else will happen to it unless it's in a binary system. If it happens to be in a binary system, it can actually collect material from another star. And that's only if the two stars are close enough. So if you have a binary system where you know, one star is here and one star is you know, hundreds, hundreds, of, hundreds of thousands of astronomical units away and they're in a big slow orbit around each other, that will never happen. It's only when they're very close together that you can actually get a ANOVA. But if you do, you get enough material built up on the surface of that star and you start hydrogen fusion reactions on the, on the surface. You build up enough hydrogen there, you get the temperatures high enough, the pressure is high enough, you can actually have a mini explosion on the surface of the star, blow that material off, and leave a little, uh, leave, leave the a white dwarf star behind, unchanged essentially, hasn't damaged it, but you throw that material off and you see a bright star, a star, you know, 100,000 times brighter than it was for a short period of time, for a period of weeks to months. Now, the massive stars, those are the fun ones, that's when real, something really cool happens. You can fuse carbon together, sun can't do that. You can fuse all the way up to iron. Once you get to iron again, once you get to iron, you're out of luck. You can't do anything else with iron. You can't get any energy out of it. You can't split it apart and get energy like you can with uranium. You can't fuse it together and get energy like we did with hydrogen and helium. So no matter what you do with it, it's going to suck energy out and that's when the star becomes unstable. That's when the core will collapse, rebound and explode and that's what we've classified as a type 2 supernova. Type 2 supernova, the end state of a massive star. But there are two types of supernova. The other one is what we call a carbon explosion. Same process as a nova, except that star was right at its limit. Yeah. 1.399 solar masses or something, it was right at that edge, and it collected enough mass to just push it over. Push it over, all of a sudden, that, uh, that star can no longer support itself. Right? I think I gave you the example, get a rickety old chair and start adding weights to it. Right? Add one, it'll still hold up, add two, once you get to a couple hundred pounds on it, eventually it's going to give and it's going to collapse. If you put enough weight on top of that white dwarf, eventually whatever is holding it together is going to give and it will collapse down, heat up intensely. All of a sudden you will get hot enough to fuse things like carbon together. But instead of going on deep down in the core, it's throughout the entire star at once and that tears it apart. And that's what we call a type 1 supernova or a carbon detonation supernova. All the elements, all heavy elements, are formed in either the core of a star, so our sun can form things like carbon, right? Maybe a little oxygen will form down there, but it's never getting out. The only way we get any of those back out is in a supernova explosion. That's the only way to get them back out in the universe. So again, with the exception of anything that involves hydrogen or helium, so you've got some hydrogen in your body, right? Water includes hydrogen. Everything else had to have formed in a supernova explosion. Anything that is not hydrogen and helium had to come out in that supernova. 
and goes back out into the universe to form the next state, next set of stars. And the last thing that we kind of went through today was looking at trying to see stellar evolution. And we can do that using star clusters because we can look at star clusters and we can see you know, a whole set of stages at once of stars that formed at exactly the same time. Plus or minus a few million years, but they all formed at about the same time relatively. And that formed from the same stuff. So you didn't have some that had only hydrogen and helium and some that had lots of heavier elements. You had a big, you were pretty much formed out of the same material. So we can get a better idea of stellar evolution because we can't just pick out, I'm just going to study this star. I'm going to sit there and watch this star. Well, I can twiddle my thumbs my whole life and it's never going to change. You know, unless I get lucky and pick the one star that's right at the edge of its life that's going to go supernova and I'll catch that one phase of it. You can't watch the rest of the phases. You have to look at a whole bunch of different uh, a bunch of different stars and different clusters in order to be able to do that. So similar that if you wanted to, if you wanted to study the human lifespan and you wanted to do it you know, in a couple days, you can't pick one person and sit there and watch them and wait for them to change. They're not going to change in a day or two, right? Most likely. No. But if you pick hundreds of people and you get the whole range from you know, infants to older people, then you've got a whole range. And you can sort of get an idea and put together, piece together, you know, how a human changes over the years. And we do the same kind of thing with stars. So, chapter 12, last chapter for the exam. Questions? Questions? Yes, the exam goes through chapter 12. But we're going to start on chapter 13 and jump ahead unless there are questions first. You're ready to go, right? No, stop. Come on. You've got to keep going. Semester's ending quicker than we thought, right? Actually, we're, we're, on a pretty, we're on a pretty good schedule right now. We're doing pretty good. So. But not good enough where I want to take off 15 minutes. So. I was yeah. going to say, early this semester. <laughs> <laughs> we're, on a, we're on a good pace. We're not, we're not like we're way ahead of pace. But. Plus, you never know. We could get a snow day still. Right? Wasn't it that, was it two years ago we had that nice snowstorm in October? I think it was on a Sunday or something though, so it didn't affect classes. But I remember there was one nice snowstorm in October. We got like six inches of snow. Hmm? Okay, October 29th. So. Ah! <laughs> That's a good way to remember it. All right. So, let's go ahead and get started on chapter 13, which will not be on the exam. But either that or I'd have to give you the exam on Friday and do a lab and that just that turns into a mess. So we'll go ahead and start on chapter 13 and work on that and finish that up Friday and then on Wednesday. So what we're going to look at in chapter 13 are two more end states of stars. So a white dwarf was one example, one thing you can have left over. The uh, one other thing you can have, you can have a neutron star or you can have a black hole. Every star that is now a star will end up as one of these, one of these three at the end of its life. So everything will end up in one of these three stages. The vast majority of them are going to end up being white dwarf stars. Anything like the sun, anything smaller than the sun, many stars massive than the sun, you know, five times the mass of the sun. That's a lot of the stars in the universe. It's a big fraction of them. Are all going to end up as white dwarf stars. So these are the rarer ones. The rarer cases and in fact, you need a supernova explosion pretty much to produce a neutron star. And you need an even more intense explosion perhaps to produce a black hole. And we'll look a little bit at, at those. 
the picture here, pretty nice, pretty shiny picture, is of a supernova remnant. So another supernova remnant. We've seen a couple now. And this is an exploded star, tore itself apart, and now we're seeing all of those layers of the star spreading out into space. All the different colorings typically in these are just that they're looking at all the different elements that are there. So one, one color will show oxygen, one color will show sulfur, one will show silicon. All the different elements, they have their own different colors and they'll be color coded you know, showing, looking at the emission from those specific elements. So we're seeing a lot of that material being expelled back out into the universe that could, you know, millions of years from now be used to form the next generation of stars. So each generation of stars should have a little bit more hydrogen, in, or a little bit less hydrogen and helium, a little bit more heavier elements than the previous stage. So what we're going to look at in this chapter is well, first we're going to start on neutron stars. We'll start looking at those today. Uh, what is a neutron star and what is a pulsar? Um, same thing, really. Neutron star and a pulsar really are essentially the same thing. In fact, neutron stars were first discovered as pulsars. And every pulsar is a neutron star, but you don't see every neutron star as a pulsar. So they're uh, different apparitions of the, same, of the same kind of thing. What happens when you get neutron stars in a binary system? So you can get two neutron stars orbiting around each other. You can actually have some interesting things that happen. Um, we have collisions of some stars. We can have collisions of other stars, of neutron stars that can actually give you a big burst of gamma rays as two neutron stars collide. So that's when we'll look about the gamma ray bursts that are seen uh, throughout the universe. Then everybody's favorite, right? Black holes. That's what everybody's looking. That's what we took the class for was to talk about black holes, right? Yeah. Um, which means in order to talk about black holes, we've got to talk a little bit about Einstein and relativity and his theories of relativity. And that sort of explains uh, how you can form a black hole and gives us some ideas of a black hole, but doesn't tell us anything about what goes on inside a black hole. Einstein's theories break down completely if you get uh, inside. We call inside a black hole, inside what we call the event horizon. There's a limiting area where we can't know anything that goes on inside that. Once we get in there, Einstein's theories kind of all break down. So we need a uh, more complete theory of gravity than even Einstein's to really talk about what goes on inside the black holes. And that's something that you know, scientists are still looking for. We don't have that complete theory yet. But we can talk about black holes. We can talk about what goes on around a black hole if you're close to it. But I can't tell you much about what would happen if you actually got inside that black hole. And then what evidence do we have? Do the, you know, nice good theoretical thing, do they really exist? Are there really black holes? And we do have very good evidence that a uh, number of black holes exist. Uh, some stellar sized, you know, from things like massive supernova explosions. Some even more massive than, than that. Uh, we know that there is a black hole at the center of our galaxy. About three and a half to four million times the mass of the sun. So a little bit more massive than any star we talk about. But we do know that there is that. We can, we can observe and measure the mass that is at that central portion, and we know that it has to be a black hole. Just based on the star, the way everything's orbiting in, the small, very small distances involved, the only thing that would fit in there would be a black hole. You couldn't fit that much normal, ordinary matter in there. And we see that in other galaxies too, not just in our galaxy. Our galaxy actually has a relatively small black hole. It's only three or four million times the mass of the sun. There are many, there are others that have many times larger uh, black holes than that. And we'll be looking at those in the coming chapters when we start talking about galaxies.
So, we'll start on neutron stars here and then pick this up again on Friday. After a type 1 supernova, star's gone. Right? Type 1, right? white dwarf star, got too massive, blew up. It started igniting carbon throughout that entire star all at once and it just tore itself completely apart. And if there's anything left, there's not much left behind. A type 2 supernova, when you have that compression, remember it imploded down? So when you have that compression, you can leave material, you can leave something behind. You can leave a couple solar masses worth of material behind. So part of that core may survive. Incredibly dense. White dwarf was dense. This is even worse. This is the entire mass of the sun or more compressed down to the size of a city, maybe six miles across, six miles, 10 kilometers across. So if you can imagine that, that's pretty good. If you can imagine taking the entire mass of the sun and squishing it down to that kind of size. How do you get rid of all that space? That's showing you how much empty space there is in material. Okay? There's a lot of empty space between the atoms. That's what a white dwarf star does. It crushes all the space between the atoms. You take all the material in the sun and you squish off every space between those atoms. Put those atoms as close together as you possibly can. And you get down to something the size of the Earth. If you take that material and now you squish the electrons out. Get rid of the electrons altogether. Squish them into the nucleus. Take an electron. Take a uh, proton. If you smash them together, you neutralize the charge and you form a neutron. So you're now crushing out all the space between the nucleus of an atom and the electrons. Crush out all that space. You take something the size of the Earth and crush it, well take something the mass of the Sun that's the size of the Earth and crush it down to a few miles across. So that's how much empty space is there. Now you're down to a giant atomic nucleus. Gigantic ball of neutrons that is that, that is that big. Extremely dense. I mean you would not even want to lift, you know, uh, you wouldn't even be able to lift a teaspoonful of the white dwarf material, let alone this material. It would be, it would be unmo unmovable. It would be that dense. So incredibly dense you'd be talking, you know, how many millions of tons for each little tiny bit of this material. That's how dense material is when you really squish out all of the empty space. So if you think about that, we're all a bunch of empty space. You, know, you could squish everybody, you know, squish everybody down here to, you know, a you know, pinprick size and be incredibly tiny. But that's what we're doing with the stars. We're forming a neutron star. Here's an example of one. Here's a picture of one. Drawing of one, not a real picture of one. Kind of hard to get an image of something that's that small. Uh, this would be about a one solar mass neutron star. And that's Manhattan Island. So just to give you an idea, you know, the size of a city that you have now crushed this material down to. All you've done is eliminate all of the empty space between it. So you've eliminated all that empty space, crushed it down, and now you've got something that's city-sized. But incredibly dense, it's still got all that mass there. You didn't lose a lot of mass. This thing can be the mass of the sun, two times the mass of the sun, up to about three times the mass of the sun. That's about its limit. Like the white dwarf star. A neutron star has a limit of about three solar masses. So if you've got more material than that, those neutrons that are now bumping up against each other, this giant nucleus, well, eventually you put so much weight on them that they crush. And then you get to the, then you get to the black hole. So there's a limit that you can get here. A black hole can be as big as you want it to be. It can be anything from actually much smaller than this. There are ways to actually form little teeny tiny black holes that are uh, much smaller. And you can form it up to millions to billions of solar masses. There's no limit to how big that we know of to how, how big a black hole can be. 
So it gives me at least a little bit of a start on there. I'm going to go ahead. We're about out of time anyway, so I'm going to go ahead and stop there instead of trying to go on to another slide. And we'll look at, next time we'll look at how we actually discovered neutron stars back in the late 1960s as a pulsar. As a pulsar. But I'll wait and I'll talk about that on Friday while we're doing, and then we'll do a lab. Question? Questions? What? What is Friday's lab? I think we're doing the phases of the moon in history. In history. What was the phase of the moon on certain days? So kind of gives you gives you some more starry night, starry night practice. Then I got a couple of others that don't use starry night, but we're not quite ready for a couple of them yet.